Welcome to episode 35 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey and I'm none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. And today's our birthday. I, can, I know. I can hardly believe it was a year ago today that we did our first ever podcast, then called Lockdown Culture, of course. The time's absolutely flown past and I've loved every minute of chatting away besides being able to talk to so many fascinating people during lockdown including you of course ed has often been the one thing keeping me sane and relatively in touch with the outside world so i'm very happy to have had it in my life yes and let's just take a moment to look back this is where we should play some sort of fancy music and have some (laughs) extracts but anyway we don't have the technology or budget for that but we have had some amazing guests. We've had Andrew Lloyd Webber, Hugh Bonneville, the actor, Nick Heitner from the ex-National Theatre, as it were, Paul Greengrass, the film director. How glamorous. We've had Gilbert and George, the artist, Tony Hall, chairman of the National Gallery and ex-head of the BBC. We've had writers from around the world, including, of course, Elif Shafak and Hannah Rothschild. And just to swank a minute about our powers of prediction, we spotted very early on last year that Call My Agent was going to be a massive hit. Actually, to be more accurate, Charlotte spotted <laughs> very early on. And in fact, she got me into it and I became a total addict as well. Anyway, they're all obviously listening to this podcast in Paris because they've now announced a fifth season and that's going to keep Charlotte and me very happy. There's also a movie. I know, I'm so excited. But other than spotting some really good stuff, we've also had so many fascinating guests on. So a huge thank you to everyone who took part. And we're also really grateful to all those listeners who've stayed with us. And let's hope we can keep going till this time next year. Yep, that's that's meant for you, the Benenden Old Girls. <laughs> and in fact... You'll love this. The Ben and Old Girls will particularly love the fact that our new sponsor is Martin Miller's Gin. We know they like a stiff gin. We introduced it last week. Martin Miller's Gin have five different gins, but the one we're particularly enjoying at the moment is Martin Miller's Original. Or to be more accurate, the one I was enjoying because it's so good, I've finished the bottle. Oh, I'm actually not that mad about mucked about with flavoured gins. And then one of the things we most love about Martin Miller's original is that when he was asked to describe it, the late Martin Miller simply said, <laughs> it tastes of gin. <laughs> well, that's my kind of gin. And I can vouch for the fact that it's very good indeed. It is delicious. Needless to say, to make anything deliciously simple is a complicated matter so the original gin is pot distilled twice in two separate distillations so you get that balance of juniper and citrus that makes it so refreshing anyway that's enough talk about gin as it's making me thirsty so go to martinmillersgin.com for more information and now let's get on with the podcast last week was extraordinary and unsettling partly because we had lockdown lifting at the beginning of it and the funeral of prince philip at the end it felt a bit as if our entire lives were undergoing some serious recalibration and all of us have been coping with different levels of change even if it's just emerging from lockdown into a permanently altered world julia samuel mbe is an claimed psychotherapist who spent 30 years working with bereaved families. She's a veteran podcaster and the author of two books, Grief Works and This Too Shall Pass, which have helped thousands cope with grief, trauma and change. This Too Shall Pass has just been republished with a new chapter on COVID. The book's subtitle is Stories of Change, Crisis and Hopeful Beginnings. 
And Julia's here to tell us a few of those stories. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, Ed. Very nice to be part of your podcast. Well, Julia, good morning. And it's a pleasure to have you, particularly because I feel I already know you, as I know quite a few people who've benefited enormously from your help over the years. Now, you have a new podcast, A Living Loss, which seeks to provide an antidote to all the change and disruption we're all enduring. But let's talk first about the new chapter in your book, which focuses on COVID and the far-reaching effects which extend beyond physical health. Now, you start the chapter by saying you took on Eric's case following a rush of curiosity. So tell our listeners a bit more about Eric and what we can all learn from his story. So Eric was in his, he'd retired, he was in his early 70s, and he was someone who worked incredibly hard, he was incredibly fit, he was very proud of his mental and physical health, and he kind of poo-pooed being ill, it's like that happened to other people, but increasingly over a number of days, he had headaches and sweats and eventually had a temperature of 104, and it was his daughters actually who called the ambulance and he was taken into the local hospital where he was on a ventilator for a week. He was very weak when he came out. He had a long time of rehabilitation, but it was much more than just, you know, the impact of it was much more than just sort of 10 days of being ill and went much deeper for every member of their family and him. And that was the sort of message of my case study is that, you know, health is invisible until we're ill. But when we are ill and we're life-threatened in the way that he he was, that it's life-changing. And also when we're ill, we're not necessarily our best selves. You know, we it can make us difficult and complicated and it, it affects people who love us the most. Because, you know, we may be in marriage for sickness and in health, but we really only want the health. Yes, and I think what is so valuable about Eric's story is how much we can all benefit from change however drastic and awful that change can seem at the time. And that's largely what I think you're trying to tell your patients. You know, apart from death, the only certainty in life is change. And that when we resist it and block it, we do ourselves harm and change happens anyway. And it, the more adaptive we are as human beings, the more we're likely to flourish and thrive. So it's, but it, change feels in the body like discomfort at one end or pain at the other end. So we naturally want to resist it. And so I kind of hope through the books and these conversations that you kind of recognise that you have to, you can't embrace the pain, but you have to allow it and support yourself through it. And then it will adapt and change you. And then that can allow you to thrive. I mean, I'm one of these people who always looks back. How on earth do you persuade people to look forward? I, I, well, I, d I think we need both because we need the past to inform us about our present and we carry our past in us, but we need to emotionally process the events of the past so they inform us accurately from where we are now. So when you're looking back at the past, you know, our memories are quite faulty and very individual anyway but also they they may tell us signals that were appropriate for what happened in the past like if you failed an exam when you were seven that you felt incredibly shamed but at 57 probably you have a whole lot of other skills that the 
failing something doesn't have doesn't matter as much, but you still haven't dealt with that seven year old failure. Does that make sense? Mm. It does to a certain extent. I mean, I'm obviously <laughs> trying. I'm obviously trying to get a free ther- for therapy. Session. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I, I think every day about the sort of different careers I could have had and where I'd be in my life if I had chosen them. But your uh, your un, un as Adam Phillips called your unlived lives. My unlived lives. God, there are so many of them. I'm getting a free therapy session now, but I'm wondering how you manage to juggle everything because you've got these books, you've got your podcasts. Are you able to take any patients on? Yes, I've got a full caseload, actually, because that is my bread and butter, if you like. It's what gives me ideas. It's where I learn most. It's where I feel I'm my best self. It's the th- it's a sort of touchstone of who I am for the last 30 years. So, I mean, everything else could fall away and I'll always be a therapist. And it's where I'm at my happiest, really. So ca- can we turn now to your new podcast, which is called A Living Loss, The Art of Losing and Finding Yourself. So I listened to a couple over the weekend, one with the author of philosophy Elizabeth Day and the other with the model and founder of Girl Talk Adua Boa and I was actually gripped by both of them and obviously we'll talk about their content in a minute but on a very light note what I loved as someone who does a lot of it myself was how much you swear. What I found when people are suffering when people are truly suffering because they have a life-threatening illness or someone they love has died or whatever has happened. Sometimes swearing is the only thing that does the business. You know, acknowledging to them that it is, can I swear? It is shit. It is shit. (laughs) Kind of gets to the heart of the matter. So I swear a lot with clients and I swear in my life and I shouldn't. And my mother would disapprove from heaven, although she did actually swear quite a bit too. So, <laughs> I, I, but I also, actually it's weird because I'm a complete hypocrite because when I hear other people s- swearing, I'm quite disapproving. Do you, do you two swear? I swear all the time. <laughs> Yes, I'm terrible swearer. So is my mother. Very interesting. (laughs) We could morph this into a whole podcast about swearing. I remember once when I was 21, I just started working for the Tory party. And I was sitting in a meeting with Ken Baker, the party chairman. And he swore. And I was utterly, utterly shocked. Amazing. (laughs) That's so funny. When grown-ups swear, it's like, oh, my goodness. I swear all the time, partly to make people pay attention. Anyway, look, we're talking about therapy. <laughs> Can I, I, know... I, I should know this, but what's your relationship to each other? Ooh, no. Ooh. <laughs> Listeners are speculating hell. all the time. The incredible chemistry we have together. There's a lot of giggles going on. There's a lot of giggles going on. Just tell me. Knees. Tell me. We're just mates. We've been mates for a while, haven't we, Charlotte? Yeah, a very, very long time, yes. Yes. I was in a we did actually meet but... through politics. Did we? Yes, we did, because I was doing a documentary about William Hague. <laughs> and I was introduced to you by a mutual friend who was an MP. So that's how we met. But that's going back a very, very, very well, long yes. time ago. Is that 20 and years? Well, Is that when he yeah. was leader? At, at least. Yes, it was. Yes. Look, that's enough questions from you, Julia. Okay. We're asking <laughs> questions here. Now, we know you define what you mean by a living loss at the start of every podcast, but can you explain it to our listeners what you mean by it and how it can help us all grow? So a living loss is all the experiences of life that give you grief and all the feelings of grief are sadness, fury, numbness, confusion, alienation, but actually often aren't recognised as grief. So it could be breaking up with a 
partner like Adwa did, like with a boyfriend, losing your job, moving country, having those unlived lives, Ed, all the losses that happen in our life all the time. You know, having a baby is a loss of your previous self as as not being a parent, as well as it is, you know, trying to have a baby and not having one. So there are many losses in life that I feel went completely unacknowledged. And so I wanted to bring it up to the fore, really. I think what's really interesting about your the talk you did with Adua is she talked brilliantly about the loss of her former self as somebody who wasn't sober, even though she knew it was more beneficial being sober. She still grieved the person she was because that was so much part of her identity, being the sort of wild party girl. I thought that was really interesting. Yes, and we have so many kind of, you know, as Ed has said, in his unlived lives, we have these actual experiences that we if we grow and mature and thrive, we have to leave them behind. I mean, we all know those people who in their 50s are still behaving like they're in their 20s, like they're kind of drinking and flirting and and being a sort of young. And it's not a good look, but we all kind of long to go back to those moments. And sometimes they can spring up in us and feel very genuine. But when we don't adapt and let the old kind of skins from the past fall off, we we become very kind of tight and rigid and um, brittle. Mm, so stuck. Stuck, yeah. When you're kind of your most honest, you're, the most personal is the most universal. So when we put on that kind of armour of being a professional or being this or being that, I think all of us feel slightly separate and, and distant. But when people are really honest, like Elizabeth and Adwa were, and actually Tom Bradby, you kind of see yourselves in them. And I think that's where the podcast people learn is that they, of course, whenever we listen to anyone, we kind of recognise aspects of ourselves that we may not have thought about before. And that can be very illuminating and useful. And also affirming, because often we think, I mean, in this too shall pass, and in all my work, one of the things I'm trying to do is that people who are suffering somehow often turn against themselves and attack themselves, feeling that somehow they are failing and that everybody else who suffers does it sort of elegantly or painlessly or, you know, becomes their better selves. And over time, you can grow from it. But the process of of suffering is, you know, ugly and messy and chaotic and you are by no means your best self. So that's one of the messages I really want to get people across, that they need to kind of allow that and turn to themselves with compassion rather than criticism and turn on themselves, well, I with what I use is a shitty committee, I swear. <laughs> Where they kind of berate themselves, like you're not doing it right and you idiot and you fool, because that's, that's making what's already bad worse. I mean, presumably you find a lot of that because at the moment there must be a huge queue for you because so many people have been in isolation and unable to discuss this or process it with anybody. I mean, there's a parallel to the um, health pandemic has been a mental health pandemic. I mean, the numbers of people in crisis. So where people had pre-existing fragilities, they got intensified. And then, you know, there was some research from the BMJ last week about 17% of long COVID have real mental health conditions, which I think actually is like Eric in my case study. I think they have trauma that hasn't been diagnosed because trauma feels like anxiety in the body. And the numbers for young people are, are hugely up. So I don't think there's a hierarchy of who's suffered most in COVID, but I have felt particularly for young people, whether at the time of their lives where they need 
to meet more people. They're hungry for connection, for discovery, for, you know, trying things out, for having fun, for partying. And they've really been robbed of that. They've been robbed, you know, grief that is the Latin word for, for being robbed. They, have, they are grieving a life that they really should have had, their landmark birthdays, the parties, the snogging, the dancing, all of that stuff. And I think that's really sad. Um, and I think they're experiencing it as a loss. And they're a generation who've been the most parented generation in history. So in some ways, they have much more psychological intelligence and emotional intelligence, but they've also been cared for a lot. So they kind of can feel things very intensely. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Julia. I've got two dinner party things now to say. The most parented generation in history is a good one. And I like the shitty committee. Uh, good. <laughs> there you go. Shitty committee I like a lot. I might get a T-shirt made with shitty committee. Well, thank you so much. And good luck with the podcast. I think it's your, you know, people are going to be listening to it massively because it's so helpful and marvellous. Well, thank you. It's lovely meeting you both and, and um, good luck with your podcast, which is also extremely good. After talking to Julia, I have a feeling that one of Ed's other lives might have been as a musician. Regular listeners might remember that he took singing lessons with Tessa Marchington and he was very keen to know more about our next guest, Aisha Denise Gokchin. Now, Aisha Denise is an LA-based concert pianist, and last month she launched the Borderless Piano Academy in response to all her fans who wrote in asking how to learn to play like her. Her mission is to make piano easy and fun, and she's here to tell us all about it on a Zoom all the way from LA. Hello. Hello. It's very nice to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. It's lovely to have you. Now, you might be about to change my life because I actually can't play the piano. I had a few lessons, but I didn't persevere. But your Borderless Piano Academy promises to teach basic competence within a month with just 15 minutes practice a day. Now, tell us how this works. Yes, I was in, you know, just like everybody else, I was in quarantine for a long time and all the concerts were cancelled. And I have a huge community online. Um, they're fans um, from all around the world. And most of them want to learn the piano. And I thought for a long time, how can I, you know, make this happen? And then I was like, you know what, like, I'll... I'll just try. And um, with this Borderless Music Academy, that's what I'm trying to do as well. It's a continuation of my mission to unite people, no matter what genre they listen to, uh, but to, um, you know, help them get to know this amazing instrument. And I've taught a lot, especially when I was at Royal Academy of Music. And, um, you know, I, I know I'm a good teacher. I, I had like 35 students when I was uh, still a student and they were all really, really excited about piano, but I just didn't know how it would work on this, like, in this online platform, which is very global. You know, you don't really know who's going to take the class and you can't really choose. It's open to everybody. And it turned out to be an amazing thing. Like we had after two weeks, people learning how to play Ode to Joy uh, by Beethoven, which was fascinating to me. I was so excited. So um, it's it's not just an online course. So you, you have these videos that are like 67 of them that are almost like two minutes long, each very short, very um, fun, interactive and they go from really absolute basics to um, like intermediate theory slash harmony. And uh, on top of the videos, we also have a community where um, it's a couple of hundred people currently, which hopefully will grow. So um, I'm very happy to have created this and it's so satisfying to watch people learn and, and they enjoy themselves. So yeah. Uh, everything you say, everything you say resonates with me. So 
when I started learning the piano, funny enough, I started learning Ode to Joy, which I really enjoyed playing. But then I gave up when I had to, had to keep practicing my scales. And basically, I'm a sort of, I don't want to sound sexist here, but I think I'm a typical bloke in the sense that what I really want to do is I want to learn 10 tunes so that when I'm drunk at a party, I can sit down and play Bohemian Rhapsody and everyone says, oh, we love Ed. He's so talented. He's so impressive. I mean, I hated scales. I mean, I, I had to do them just for exams myself. And uh, I, it's just, I, I haven't done scales since ages. I don't even remember the last time. Uh, but uh, I do teach how to create your own exercises. So like, so there is the borderless core course, which is like quite, you know, this, the, the one that I've mentioned, but then you build repertoire from different bundles, like classical hits, soundtracks, um, like things like different repertoire. And so, yeah, the idea is to exactly what you said, to help people play the music they love to hear. Um, and that's uh, that's the mission. And uh, it is to teach it in a really easy way, but also to teach it in an academically right way, because I do see a lot of tutorials online where like someone just presses the keys <laughs> you'd watch and you're supposed to learn from it. It's ridiculous. I thought that if you had an app where you, they just show you which keys to press, isn't that a good way to learn? You think that's a terrible... <laughs> that's app? like typing. That's typing <laughs> rather than the piano. <laughs> no, but if you, if you downloaded a song you wanted to play and you just followed the... Uh the keys isn't that a good way to learn you think that's a bad way it's so strange if you learn like that it's almost like how are you going to know what the music means and how are you going to know how to memorize it how and how to make sense of what's going on like the whole art of music is so completely away from what you've just mentioned i mean if you just want to press keys you'll just sound awful <laughs> just have to. we'd love to hear about some of your pupils because i actually seen a little clip of one of your pupils playing ode joy on on youtube i think so tell us about some of them I know you've only been going two weeks, so you haven't got up to your four weeks yet. There is one guy who has a kid and he actually started, uh, like they bought a piano for the kid, but then <laughs> um, the dad started learning and he already can play. And I was shocked to hear that uh, he had no previous experience. Like he was literally just playing amazingly Ode to Joy, two hands, really, really good, good tempo. And well, he never played before. He no. never played the piano. No, he's no. never, never. Ed, this is your moment. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I can definitely do this because, you know, in between the running, the home gym workouts, the, the meal kits that I'm getting delivered, this is just another thing to add on. Yeah, please do, because I would love to hear, you know, how you're doing. And um, I can, you know, send you all the, the repertoire bundle options, too. You can try, like, see if there is a repertoire you like to play. Uh, and then you can try at a bar or a party <laughs> once everything opens up, you know. You are known as a crossover Pianist. Tell us all about that. Well, I am, as I said, a very classically trained pianist. Because you grew up in Turkey. That's where you learned to play the piano, is that right? Yes, exactly. So my first teachers were from Juilliard and Eastman School of Music, and they're very good. And But, but they were very very conservative in that regard. They were very, very strict and in, in a way I would have stomach aches before every lesson. Like I, um, it, it kind of, it kind of worked for me because I loved the discipline and like the whole series aspect of it, but it took away the fun part for sure. So now if I went to see you in concert, you'd be doing a mix of classical and pop. Yeah. So I would, I would be playing music that I, think the audience will enjoy. I'll be so sitting it, serenely in my seat and then dancing in the aisle. 
<laughs> yeah, well, you'll be able you'll be able to play along at it. You, do lots of, you gonna... know, like there's this trend for classical music, so people, you know, with electric violins and lots of lights. Oh yeah, you do all that. No, 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 no. So my mission is the opposite. It's to make sure people understand classical music. So I, I'm not doing any of that. Uh, I mean, I like the lights, but not the not the techno beats and stuff. No. Do you, do you regard Andrew Lloyd Webber as classical music? Oh, my God. You just asked me a very tricky question. Uh, I would say kind of like maybe a modern type of Bellini. Because what annoys me about classical music is like there's this whole atmosphere where you're meant to be privilege to go and listen and you're thick if you don't kind of get it and you're meant to sit there like a victorian audience and just not do anything and also why shouldn't andrew lloyd webber be regarded as mozart because mozart was the andrew lloyd webber of his day yeah yeah i would i would say yeah more more towards uh, bellini but just because of the <laughs> style that he writes but but i would say for example john williams is definitely i yeah, think exactly why wouldn't we in two years time go along to a concert of john williams and you know go and watch the movie amadeus williams yeah (laughs) (laughs) well what i absolutely agree why won't these people Mm -hmm. be classical music icons in 200 years time they will be west side story as important as the marriage of figaro absolutely and i feel like the reason why is because so classical music uh, has gone in a different branch. So um, I think classical uh, music reinvented itself in, in different ways that don't really reflect a part of society anymore, which is a problem. Well, you're going to be learning. Well, I'm and, going to and be just signing for up listeners, to Please. Can you just yes, tell us how to do to that? Just, just quickly before you go, can you just tell us how to do that? It's $149 and you sign up. Where? You, you go to borderlesspiano.com and then you choose um, whatever bundle is uh, fitting and you can just choose the borderless uh, core course, which is, you know, all encompassing like from it's for people who have no experience uh so you uh learn all the concepts there and then you learn how to play ode to joy and then you can play any piece you want after that i really i genuinely would love to play ode to joy again because it is it is easy is not well now you can accessible it's an accessible piece of music it is it is and then you can add anything it's the the formula is there so you apply those skills to any other piece and you'll be fine on your own or you can choose a bundle so i would love to have you and and see how you progress (laughs) it would be an honor let's do this oh well thank you so much so glamorous doing this in la isn't it charlotte don't you feel in our little we're in hammersmith and shepherd's bush and Uh here we (laughs) are transported to la now, are we ready to laugh about the NHS? We've talked a bit already on this podcast about whether comedy about anything to do with medical emergencies or ambulances was possible mid-pandemic. But now that the worst seems, well, so we hope to be over, are we ready for a comedy series set in the world of paramedics? Our next guest certainly hopes so, because he's the executive producer behind a new comedy series for Sky called Bloods which is loosely based around the budding romance between paramedics played by Jane Horrocks and Samson Kao. Here to tell us all about it is that producer himself, Ash Atala. Good morning, Ash. Good morning, friends. How are you? Well, very well, thank you, Ash, and good morning. And it's great to have you with us. Now, you're very well known for being behind the office and the IT crowd, so I think we can safely say you have a nose for very successful comedy. So start by telling us what drew you to this one. Well, um, 
the world is awash with documentaries about the, the world of paramedics. I mean, I think almost on every channel you switch on and you'll see a documentary about it. And, and we began thinking why there hadn't ever really been a, a drama or more specifically a comedy about that world. And um, so began developing one um, probably about two and a half years ago when coronavirus was just a, 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 a word on Scrabble that you would probably be disqualified for. So we, we, we began putting it together and made a taster tape. And, um, and by the time we came to make it, the world was a very different place. But in terms of its subject matter, I've long been, you know, uh, obsessed, I think, with the world of work. And I think the work that ambulance drivers do, because they have to work in pairs so much, you know, by nature, they are just two people in ambulances has long fascinated me. So that's sort of where it began. Oh, that's brilliant. So I like that. I, I'm going to start thinking about projects about where people well, Maybe there could be a, a comedy about two very ill-matched co-hosts of a podcast. Anyway, <laughs> I... Um, that seems entirely unlikely. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, para- paramedics are the great one of the great heroes of of the pandemic. But I know I know that, or gather that, Samson Kaya, who stars as Malik and is also one of the show's co-creators, along with Nathan Byron, he said he wanted to make people smile with this and do paramedics proud. Did you think, as coronavirus engulfed us, even though you were quite far down the road with the project, that you were taking a risk? Do you think people are ready for this kind of dark humour? I think when you take a, a, a subject matter like ambulance drivers, from, from the very outset, you take away one of the main tenets of comedy, which is incompetence. And I think any comedy around ambulance drivers that shows them being incompetent will fail on day one because, of oh, course, they, can't, mm. no, they cannot be incompetent. And so we certainly don't portray them as such. So actually, the, all of our characters in our show are extremely good at their jobs, as you would expect ambulance drivers to be. So really the jokes or the comedy comes around, uh, the politics, of course, that goes on at the depot, the relationships between them, but never, ever, that they don't know how to do a call out, how to respond to a roadside emergency, because on that basis, the show would sort of fall apart from being entirely unrealistic, and I think would be rather pointlessly cruel as well. Well, now, before we let you go, can you just tell us a bit about Jane Horrocks? Because she's become a bit of a national treasure, hasn't she? So brilliant bit of casting. Tell us about the part she plays and what You're she was like to work with. with a national treasure when it comes yeah. to And just um, a genuinely delightful person. We've sort of struck up um, an unlikely friendship, really. She, she was in a show I made um, uh, a good few years ago called Trolleyed, which was another workplace comedy set in a supermarket for also for Sky. And uh, Jane played um, the deputy manager of the supermarket. And um, she's a brilliant uh, comic actress and a real free spirit of a person. Um, I guess people know her in comedy for, for Bubbles, of course, and Fab. But she's, uh, you know, an actress of extraordinary range and, and talent and sort of, I'm, 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 this sounds a very lovely thing to say, but I'm really happy that uh, we're friends and, and she's just brilliant in, in Bloods as well. Oh, I can't wait to see it. And for our listeners, tell us when it starts and where they can see it and so on. So, yeah, so it does start, you know, you know, uh, Ed, you were asking me, you know, about bringing out a show like this in in the pandemic. And and you were right. And and we did decide to to delay it for, you know, the show was due to start um, about five or six weeks ago. But the world feels uh, uh, a much brighter place now, uh, we hope. And so it starts on May the 5th. And um, it's on it's on Sky One, but I think will be mostly viewed on demand. 
And um, we're very proud of it. And we hope it's the beginning of something great. Well, it's about time you had some success, Ash. So <laughs> we, we, wish you, we wish you all the best. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week. But you know where we are, countryandtownhouse.co.uk. You'll find our sister podcast there, House Guests, for anyone interested in interior design. This week, Carol Annette talks to Karina Rickards, a highly talented woman behind the gorgeous blue and white striped ceramic Cornishware. And you can also listen to the Great British Brands podcast hosted by Michael Heyman of Changemakers. You'll also find the Great British Brands April newsletter on our site, plus the Country and Townhouse weekly newsletter by adding slash newsletter to the end of our web address. So now we've been recording this after talking to LA, so it's definitely drinks time. And we're both now off from Martin Miller's original gin and tonic. Our thanks again to Martin Miller's gin for their support. And just before we do finally go, a really big thank you again to all our listeners who've stayed with us and made the last year such fun despite everything. We hope we've helped cheer up your lockdown too. See you next week. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.